Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The guy who found Kurt Cobain's body was an electrician named Gary Smith. He stumbled on the scene at about 8.40 on the morning of April the 8th, 1994. He called a local radio station, saying that he had the scoop of the century. When the King County Medical Examiner released a statement later in the day, the cause of death was described this way. A shotgun wound to the head, and at this time the wound appears to be self-inflicted. 24 hours later, Kurt's death was officially declared a suicide. Most of the world absorbed the news, grieved for a while, and then moved on. Most of the world. Even now, more than a decade later, people are questioning that coroner's verdict. Some insist that it was much more sinister than a simple suicide. They use words like murder and assassination and cover-up. Are they nuts? Maybe. But they've got a pretty wild story to tell. And if you let them talk and lay out their evidence, they say they've uncovered a conspiracy. A conspiracy to kill Kurt Cobain. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a show called Was Kurt Cobain Murdered? I know, I know, we've been chasing this ghost for more than 10 years now, but this is a story that just won't go away. It's a new rock version of the JFK assassination. But just like what happened in Dealey Plaza in 1963, there's still a lot of smoke, a lot of loose ends, and a lot of unanswered questions. And just like JFK, there are people who believe that the official story of Kurt Cobain's death is not the real story. On part one, we went through Kurt's last weeks, the final Nirvana tour, the drug problems, the Rome overdose, and all the events that led up to his body being discovered in the greenhouse on April the 8th, 1994. We also looked at two areas that have aroused suspicion in the minds of conspiracy investigators. Number one, the evidence that Kurt was trying to divorce Courtney Love. And number two, the fact that Kurt believed that he was somehow in danger of, well, something during the last weeks of his life. Let's continue our review of the evidence, beginning with the case of the credit card. On April 1st, 1994, Kurt disappeared from the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles. He spent two nights in rehab before he jumped a plane that night and flew back to Seattle. The next morning, Courtney, who was in L.A. doing promotion for the new Hole album, was freaked out by Kurt's disappearance. She allegedly planted a story in the press saying that she overdosed, the theory was that Kurt would get freaked out and call her, but that apparently didn't work. Sometime that day, she also had Kurt's MasterCard canceled. The following day, which was Easter Sunday, April the 3rd, she hired Detective Tom Grant. Here's what he told the Alan Handelman radio show in 1995. Easter Sunday, April 3rd, Courtney called my office in Beverly Hills and told me someone was using her, her husband's credit card and she wanted me to try to find out who it was. And that's when we began uh, the investigation and got involved in this case. Initially, well, when we walked into, I took a guy with me by the name of Ben Klugman, one of my investigators, and we went over to the Peninsula Hotel and met with Courtney in the room. 
And when we walked in, one of the first things she, she said is she, she clarified this whole thing. And she said that it wasn't actually someone using her husband's credit card. It was her husband using the credit card and that she had canceled it because he just left the rehab and she was trying to track his activity. So that's where our investigation began. Kurt was missing from rehab. Um, he was, she had canceled his credit card and she wanted us to contact the credit card company and try to track the activity of her husband and try to locate him and find out where he was. She suspected that he'd gone to Seattle. Uh, she told us she thinks he went up there, but she never told us initially anyhow that he had been to the house, that he'd been seen at the house. She just suspected he was there, but she didn't have any way of knowing for sure. She also told us that she thinks he was going to be leaving Seattle and going back east to stay with Michael Stipe or somebody. All right, fine. So we're dealing with a canceled MasterCard. But here are the loose ends. When Kurt's body was discovered, that card was missing. Somebody tried to use that card on April the 4th and several times over the next few days. And whoever had this card was apparently a big spender because one time the holder of the card tried to take a $5,000 cash advance over the phone. Another time it was $2,500 and another occasion $1,500. Who had Kurt's credit card and where were they trying to use it? The cops say they have a theory, but they won't release that information. What's going on here? Here's the weirdest part. Somebody apparently tried to use the card early on the morning of April the 8th. April the 8th is the day Kurt's body was found. So that's right. Somebody tried to use Kurt's credit card to buy $43.29 worth of flowers. Let's talk about Detective Tom Grant's investigation. Like I said, he first met Courtney in Los Angeles on Sunday, April the 3rd. After that interview, he hired an investigation firm in Seattle to watch the house. The next day from his office in L.A., Tom kept track of attempts to use Kurt's MasterCard, and he kept in touch with the surveillance team in Seattle, who was also watching various high-end hotels in the city. Here's Tom Grant on the Alan Handelman radio show again. Monday, April 4th, she called in a missing persons report, and she pretended to be Kurt's mother, Wendy Cobain. You've seen this printed in a lot of news media where Wendy called in this missing persons report, and that's false. It was Courtney that called that report in. I believe one of the reasons she did that, in my own personal opinion, is so, so that she could word the report, because the, the wording on that missing personal or missing persons report turned out to be a pretty important thing in this investigation. Uh, it, it, in fact, it reads, Mr. Cobain ran away from California facility and flew back to Seattle. He also bought a shotgun and may be suicidal. So, again, the wording of this report, and this is what the police had to work with when they found the body, it sounded like he left the rehab, he was suicidal, he went out and bought a shotgun, and then they show up, and boy, there, sure enough, there he is. By Wednesday, April the 6th, no one had been able to locate Kurt, so Tom decided to take matters into his own hands and flew to Seattle. Renting a car, he picked up Kurt's best friend, Dylan Carlson. They checked out a few of Kurt's usual hangouts, including some drug dealer spots, but they didn't see or hear anything. Then they decided they'd better check on the house. They arrived at 2.15 in the morning on the 7th. They were a little freaked out because, after all, they didn't know Kurt's state of mind. He did have that newly purchased shotgun, and he was apparently really scared of intruders. So before getting out of the car, Tom turned on a pocket tape recorder 
just so we could get an audio document of what was going on. Here is a copy of that actual tape. They went all through the house, top to bottom. It was a very, very thorough search, or so they said. They didn't go out into the backyard to check the greenhouse. Now, Dylan knew about the greenhouse, but he apparently forgot to tell Tom. Had they looked in the upstairs room that night, they would have found the body. When we come back, we'll explore more of the unanswered questions behind Kurt Cobain's death. Questions that some people believe point to a murder conspiracy. At first, Tom Grant believed that his job was done. He failed to find Kurt in time, and now that he was dead, there was nothing more to do. But something about Kurt's death really began to nag at Tom. To him, this, this case wasn't cut and dried, so he began to collect information on his own time, unpaid. When the medical examiner conducted an autopsy on Kurt Cobain's body, he confirmed that Kurt was very, very high when he died. They found traces of a drug called diazepam, and more importantly, a concentration of 1.52 milligrams of morphine per liter of blood. Heroin turns into morphine when it gets injected into your body, and that's a lot of morphine. Dr. Cyril Wecht, a pathologist who has spent years investigating the JFK assassination, says that kind of dose would put even hardcore addicts out within seconds. He maintains that Kurt would have never, ever been able to aim the gun and pull the trigger with that kind of smack in his bloodstream. So if Kurt didn't pull the trigger because he couldn't, who did? And come to think of it, why would Kurt bother with a shotgun anyway? Why not just inject a lethal dose of heroin, peacefully go to sleep, and die? That would have certainly left a better-looking corpse. And while we're at it, let's spend a little more time talking about the body. Several people, including the electrician who found the body, say that it looked like Kurt's hair had been combed, which would have been pretty strange for someone who had been just shot in the head with a 20-gauge shotgun. And contrary to reports, Kurt had not barricaded himself in that room above the greenhouse. Now, there was a stool by the door, but it was too short to wedge the door shut. Let's look at the gun. There were three shells loaded into that shotgun. If Kurt bought the gun to kill just himself, 
Why would he load it up with more than one shell? Maybe he did plan to use it for protection. And if so, who or what was he so afraid of? The police reports say that the marks found on Kurt's hands were consistent with the firing of a Remington M11 shotgun. Tom Grant, however, was unable to duplicate those results with his own M11. And where were Kurt's fingerprints? Why weren't there any on the gun? Here's a quote from the forensics report. The item was processed for prints on 050694 by senior ID technician T. Geronimo, number 4466. Four cards of latent prints were lifted. The four cards of lifted latent prints contain no legible prints. Now remember, the postmortem concluded that Kurt had a huge amount of drugs in his system when he died. A normal person would not be able to even stand up with this amount of drugs in their system, let alone aim a gun. Here's what Tom told High Times magazine. There is no doubt in my mind that Kurt was hanging out up there in the greenhouse with a shotgun that was like a little lookout tower for him over his whole property, and I do firmly believe that he was in fear of his life. He was going to be flying out of Seattle, probably within hours, certainly within the next few days. He goes on. So he was up there, and whoever came in there with him was probably doing drugs with him until they got loaded. He had three times the lethal dose of heroin in his system. It's highly unlikely that he would shoot himself up in both arms, put the needle away in his little kit, and then have the mental capacity to sit there and manipulate the shotgun and shoot himself. If he wasn't unconscious, he was at least to the point where he wasn't aware of what was going on. Anyone could have done anything to him. You see why some people want to question the official version of events? One thing that continues to really bug Tom Grant is the suicide note found next to the body. Tom just doesn't think it sounds like a suicide note. It sounds more like a retirement speech to fans. And the words, which will be happier without me, look like they were written by someone else. In fact, the last five lines of the note look like they were in someone else's handwriting. Two handwriting analysts agree. And nowhere in the note does Kurt say anything about wanting to kill himself. And what about that second note? Yes, there was another note that Courtney never told anybody about. Several months after Kurt died, Courtney says she found it in a sealed envelope in her bedroom under her pillows. This is rather odd because when Tom and Dylan searched the house on the morning of April the 7th, they looked everywhere, including under pillows and mattresses. But Courtney insists that's where she found this letter. And this note wasn't suicidal either. Kurt allegedly tells Courtney that he's leaving her and Seattle. And while we're on the subject of last letters, why didn't Kurt leave anything for his mom or his daughter? And why, in the months after Kurt's death, was Courtney so concerned about getting all her friends and associates to sign some kind of confidentiality agreement? Like I said, lots of loose ends. Tom Grant believes that the infamous internet photo of Kurt's head after the suicide is a fake. He maintains it's just some stock autopsy photo of someone who got caught in a lawnmower. Someone planted that picture, or so Tom says. 
He says that the wounds weren't that dramatic. They were still fatal, but nowhere near as severe as been reported in the press. And what happened at the funeral home? Richard Lee, an independent journalist who has been investigating the case pretty much from day one, reported on April 13, 2003, that Kurt's body was mutilated while at the funeral home by one or more employees. In the way he describes it, the body was horribly abused. What was that all about? Tom and Richard Lee aren't the only people conducting investigations into the death of Kurt Cobain. Lee Remington lives in Seattle and has been pursuing what he calls the Cobain matter since April 13, 1994, just five days after the body was found. He concurs with much of what Tom Grant has uncovered, but he goes a little further. Lee elaborates on the inconsistencies regarding what has been said and written about the nature of the fatal head wound. He says that even with a light load in the shotgun, that there should have been more damage. Yet, according to Lee, there was no exit wound. He gets way more graphic than we need to be here, but the bottom line is that he believes that it was impossible for someone to shoot themselves in the head the way Kurt was alleged to have and cause that little damage. And he also points out that the suicide note wasn't signed. Kurt was printed out in small letters, no signature. Now, does that mean anything? Lee goes on to outline the rest of his case in exquisite detail, and he reaches the conclusion that Kurt Cobain was murdered by a person or persons unknown, and that the Seattle Police Department should reopen the case and reclassify it as a homicide. However, persons unknown have launched a major and successful cover-up of what really happened. Got to know, haven't told, promise you, haven't true. Let me take a ride, cut yourself, want some please myself. We've covered a lot of ground on the whole subject of the Kurt was murdered issue, but we haven't heard the most damning evidence yet. It's the story of an alleged hitman, the $50,000 fee, and a mysterious decapitation by train. Does the name Eldon Hoke mean anything to you? Probably not, unless you were a fan of an extreme L.A. punk band called The Mentors. They released songs with titles like Sandwich of Love, Golden Showers, and Fag Basher. They were, you know, pretty charming bunch. I know this may sound shocking. Let me tell you I'm rocking. I always do what I utter. First the mom, then the daughter. Okay, see if you can follow this along. Carolyn Rue helped Courtney Love found Hole. She once went out with the guitarist of The Mentors, a dude by the name of Eric Carlson, who worked under the name Sicky Wifebeater. It was through Caroline and Sicky that Courtney met mentor singer Eldon Hoke, and his stage name was El Duce. In the April 1996 edition of High Times magazine, El Duce claimed that in December 1993, Courtney Love offered him $50,000 to kill her husband. He says, she said, I need a favor of you. I need you to blow my old man's head off. I'll give you $50,000 to blow his effing head off. This is a claim that El Duce repeated in the Nick Broomfield documentary, Kurt and Courtney. This is El El Duce. So, but you, uh, you did some deal with Courtney, right? Yeah. Well, she offered me 50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain. She what? 
50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain. And that's that's a fact, is it? <laughs> but uh, people might think you're not the most reliable witness. Well, that's too bad. What? You know, when she offered me money, God dang, I wish I would have taken it, man. But I, I know who whacked him. But how were you going to whack him? Did she tell you how to do it? Yep, blow his f***ing head off. So she where were you going to find him to do it? Well, up there, and uh, she gave, you know, mapped it out. I mean, you know, up there in uh, Bellevue, wherever they live, right outside Seattle. I know right where the house is. I know right what, what uh, garden to pop him in. Uh, I, just, I just didn't think she was serious. But she didn't say anything about Make making it look, it look like, like a suicide. suicide. Well, yeah, but if you just blew his brains out like you said, it wouldn't look like suicide. It looked like you blew his brains right. out, right? But uh, that's just the way it's done. End of story. <laughs> I got, <laughs> hey, 50 grand does a lot of talking. He maintains that Courtney pulled up in a limousine in front of a record store called Rock Shop on Wilcox Avenue in Los Angeles. The owner of the store corroborates El Duce's story. Cards were exchanged, and nothing was heard from Courtney until March 1994, when she allegedly called the store looking to give El the word to go ahead. L was on tour, so he missed the call, and he and Courtney never hooked up again. But when Kurt died, L came up with a theory. I think Kurt was getting ready to divorce her for adultery charges, the theory goes. She had to have him whacked right away so she could get the money. A crank, right? Just hang on a second. On March 6th, 1996, Eldon Hoke, L. Duce, took a lie detector test for a national TV show. The guy conducting the test was Dr. Edward Gelb, the same guy who gave O.J. Simpson his lie detector test. When the results came in, Dr. Gelb concluded that there was a 0.01% chance that Eldon Hoke was lying. In other words, the machine indicated that there was a 99.99% chance that Eldon at least believed he was telling the complete and absolute truth. Could Eldon have faked out the machine? Hmm, Dr. Gelb doesn't think so. Oh, and by the way, El Duce had a side project to the mentors. The band was called Courtney Killed Kurt. And, uh, oh yeah, Eldon is no longer with us. In the early morning hours of April 19, 1997, he was decapitated when he was hit by a train coming home from a gig. His official obituary reads, His death was the result of being hit by a train in a state of alcoholic intoxication. As you might guess, some people find the whole El Duce thing just a little weird. One final bit of information. This comes from a very strange source. As I was putting together this program, I got a call in my office right out of the blue. On the other end was Hank Harrison, Courtney Love's biological father, offering to talk about his daughter. We had a chat, and it went something like this. Here's the tough question. Do you believe your daughter had anything to do with Kurt's death? Oh, sure. I mean, she's actually written letters and had several... Uh, interviews where she's confessed to various aspects of it. Now, whether she had a direct hand in the physical aspects of the 
demise. I have no, um, I'm not sure, but whether she benefited from it and whether she had something to do with it. There's a lot of really missing material. We were in Toronto in 97. I was interviewed on the Jane Hodden show. Remember that? Yeah, I was in. I was on and that same they, show. They did a survey, and I was astounded to hear that about ninety-five percent of the people listening to the Gene Hutton show at that time were were interested in reopening the case and voted that way, called in and voted that way. So I don't think it's just a few people think it's a conspiracy. I think there's a lot more. I, I wouldn't even call it a conspiracy because it was. If Kurt hadn't been killed that weekend, he would have gone to the bank and taken all the money out of the funds. He would have signed the divorce papers and he would have signed various other contract papers that had to be signed, which would have cut a lot, Courtney and a lot of other people out of a lot of money. So there's the motive is there. And right now, as it turned out, Courtney would have received something like whatever the prenuptial agreement uh, would have allowed her, whereas now she got everything. And she now says that the baby's money is gone, too. So what do you think? Are all these Kurt was murdered people full of it? Are they just chasing shadows, trying to make something out of nothing? If we're going to be fair and sensitive about this, we should also consider the other side. Like I said, the vast majority of people out there, including a number of journalists and biographers and Kurt's friends and his bandmates and his family, believe that he took his own life. For example, this is a statement from Kurt's mother, Wendy. Tom Grant is the same inept private investigator who was hired by the family to find Kurt the week he was missing. That should tell you something of his incapacity as a private investigator. Grant is trying to get his 15 minutes of fame. He's a sleazebag. For months, we tried to get him to sign a confidentiality form to no avail. And if you're a reader of Us Weekly magazine, you may have noticed a letter to the editor from Donald Cobain in April of 2004. Donald Cobain, Kurt's biological father, basically tells all these people to get a life. And there you have it. Two hours worth of evidence that Kurt Cobain was murdered. Now, for what it's worth, I think that Kurt did it to himself. He was pretty messed up, so there's no reason to assume he was thinking clearly. Perhaps he was even clinically depressed. One doctor says that Kurt may have been genuinely mentally ill at the time of his death. British psychologist Simon Manchip says Cobain's suicide note, which reads, I feel guilty beyond words, I don't feel the passion anymore, indicates mental illness. He adds that press reports should have concentrated more on that depression and less on the premature deaths of other rock stars, such as Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison. The media, he says, needs to be educated. Is Courtney Love messed up? Yes, she is. Did she have some direct connection to the cause of her husband's death? No. I spent some time with her, and although she's weird, I don't think she had anything to do with it. But if you want to pursue the case on your own, there are lots of resources on the net. Start with www.cobaincase.com, which is the official website of Detective Tom Grant. He offers links to other information sources. And if you haven't already, see if you can rent the documentary Kurt and Courtney by British filmmaker Nick Broomfield. You may not buy everything he has to say, but his performance at an American Civil Liberties Union banquet is one of the most ironic things ever committed to film. And if that's still not enough, look for the two books on the case by Canadian authors Max Wallace and Ian Halperin. 
Both of them seem to believe that Kurt was, in fact, murdered. Like I said at the beginning of this program, life is messy. Death can be even messier. Unlike TV, there are always going to be loose ends. And we humans have this pathological fear of the unexplainable. When something bad happens, we just got to know why. Even though there are just some things that we will never know. And death is the greatest unanswered question of all. So no wonder we as a species obsess about it. And when someone rich and famous takes their own life, us regular people just don't get it. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 